Catherine Bigelow's solo directorial debut is a departure from the traditional gothic vampire story, a refreshingly vibrant and modern work that can best be described as a horror-western hybrid. 1987's Near Dark shares as many similarities with The Lost Boys as it does Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. There's lots of leather-clad blood-sucking to go around, but the heart of the story is ultimately true to the Western aesthetic of Outlaws on the Lamb. Near Dark is unique in the fact that the outlaws in question have formed a familial bond of sorts, which sets them apart from the backstabbing ways of, say, the Hole in the Wall gang. They're anarchists living on the fringes of society, and as a viewer, you're given an all-access pass into their world of mayhem. Despite their violent encounters with seemingly anyone and everyone, you still want to see them succeed as a group and are complacent in their batshit antics right down to the bitter end. And we sink our fangs into the meaty flesh of this cult hit next on Midnight Flicks. Welcome to Midnight Flicks, a podcast dedicated to discussing movies relegated to a late night purgatory. I am one of your hosts, Pat Mitchell, and joining me on this cinematic expedition is Adam Walker. Adam, are you alive? Uh, I was trying to burp. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm a 
I'm uh, alive and kicking still. Doing, doing the damn thing, doing it well as best as I can. Whatever I saw on CNN yesterday that we will have to do, possibly, we will have to do social distancing until 2022. So that's great. I do not believe that for one second. And the only reason why they're saying that is if people in uh, people don't get their shit together enough to actually ramp up the research for a vaccine. Yeah, that's so, a worst case scenario. Yeah. So I don't know. I would just say, hey, yo, get your act together. But so far we're we're living in a worst case scenario timeline. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well in all other respects. I, I'm honestly I'm I'm just in general not a fan of prognosticating that comes from major media outlets. Uh, there we go. Finally. Well, this was Anderson Cooper and he's gay. So does that help? Fantastic. <laughs> I, I trust and I trust Anderson Cooper's word more than most of those fucking shithead. I do. I do love pieces. Anderson Cooper a lot. Yeah. So, yeah, I saw that. That was actually a discussion we were having uh, earlier today, me, me and my partner. And I was kind of it kind of kept going through my head. I'm like, I can't believe those motherfuckers said that. But. That's just my, you know, with me being uh, skeptical of, of everything. It's fear-mongering, for sure. Yeah, it's fear-mongering. That's why I don't like it. So. I have a question for you. And I, I yes, please. Is tonight's film our first female director? Because I'm almost positive it is. I don't, we haven't done a, so we've done f- uh, some foreign directors. This mm-hmm. is our first female director. Mm-hmm. Um, I I really, if we were to branch out and try to be as all-inclusive as possible, I would love to do uh, Todd Haynes's Poison or uh, a Kenneth Anger movie for a, for a prominent gay director. Absolutely. I would love to do a Kenneth Anger uh, movie. That would definitely, I feel, will be uh, manifesting itself at some point in the future. Yeah. Absolutely. First female director and... Not only that, but I tell you what, man, a real wallop of a movie coming from a female director. She, I, there, no hyperbole. This is my single favorite vampire movie. It is, it is not even close. There's other movies that are, are great, even fantastic, but this I love and adore and it has the replay value is just through the roof. I absolutely adore this movie. And moreover, um, I, I really adore um, Catherine Bigelow's filmography in general. Uh, I think I unknowingly have seen just a bunch of her stuff. Um, I didn't know she even directed Point Break until like several years ago. Like I didn't even know that was a, a female directed movie. She has such a rich and diverse catalog of movies. Um, I, I fucking love it. And she's not afraid to mess around in the action, uh, in the action genre that that's like almost her bread and butter at this point. Yeah, totally. She's done some really cool shit and you know, whatever, if, if you didn't know any better, you, you would just assume that these are movies that are by a male director. So that's, what's cool is she has a very, she has a, she has a wide breadth of of films that 
you know, are pretty gritty. And in a lot of ways, there is a certain testosterone uh, drenched aspect of some of them. So that's where, you know, again, people might get thrown off like when they're like, oh, this is a woman that did this. So, yeah, it's super cool. Um, I was going to say, not only is it also our first female director, but also shout out to my dude, Lance Hendrickson, who is in what I like to call my quote unquote, my round table or pantheon of character actors, respected character actors here. Um, so that was, that's sick too. And, and also, our first Bill Paxton. And our first Bill. No, no, it's not. Remember? Streets of Fire. I'm that's, sorry. That's where yeah. this, the whole the Pax attack. That's how we even. That's how we even changed it. Yeah, you're right. right. I'm sorry. So, so it came from that. And I will also echo what you said. This is my favorite contemporary vampire movie by a long shot. And this is coming from somebody. Little uh, anecdotal uh, bit here for me. I was a goth kid. And I grew up it, reading shitty Anne Rice and, and vi- vampire novels. Uh, so this is coming from somebody who, without question, is all about the romantic, sexy Dracula vampires. I love Hammer Horror. I love Francis Ford Coppola's uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. I love Bela Lugosi. So, you know, that's a thing. This is coming from somebody who is an old school, sexy vampire guy kind of guy. Um, and this is definitely head and shoulders, my favorite vampire movie. And we were talking off the mic after the last episode about Westerns a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I really love the Western aesthetic in this movie. Um I think they try to play it as a Western and it just homogenized into a multi-genre movie. It, it is, um, as I said in the opening monologue, equal to Lost Boys as it is uh, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid. I mean, they're like a gang on the run from the law um, as well as, you know, blood-sucking freaks of the night. <laughs> right. And it's got both elements. And whether it was just a synchronicity of the moment, you know, multiple minds kind of in the in the same thinking in the same sort of uh, space going in the same direction. But the fact that this movie came out at the same time, roughly as Lost Boys is also the same exact year, same exact year, apparently, what, like two months before. Yeah, very, very close. Yeah. Yeah. So. And the thing with this, too, being that these vampires are these just sadistic, dirty, fucking tough-as-nails, biker kind of hillbillies, to me, it kind of almost lends itself a little bit more realism than, you know, you would give to other vampire movies that are more mystical and supernatural. It's like, when you watch this movie, you're like, I could totally see these motherfuckers coming into some dive bar that I'm at in Texas or Oklahoma and just, just destroying the place. So 
that's really why I like, and I come from, uh, I come from a family and grew up around people where, uh, you know, a lot of my friends being in the, the metal and music scene and bikers and stuff like that. I come from this whole scene where these kind of characters to me aren't that it's not weird. Uh, or, or like I, I have a certain f- familiarity to them. So that's another reason why I kind of like it is like, you know, like I've been friends with people like that minus the vampire side, but like people that are just like, totally like loose cannon sadistic motherfuckers so again that's just my whole little editorial about why i like this movie so much and before we dive right into it the uh the the coolest fact about this movie that is super short and a good segue into the movie is the movie doesn't use the word vampire not once do they ever say vampire in the entire movie yeah, that is so cool. Like you don't even notice it. Like every time I think of that fact, I think back on the movie and I'm like, it, it, it is mind blowing. Uh, you you don't even notice that they don't, but they never refer to themselves as such. And, and neither do any non vampires in the movie. Right. It's not like they they don't expose their fangs or anything like that. The only thing that gives them the vampire. Persona is you know not being able to be out during the daytime and being impervious to injury and when severin well i don't want to get too far ahead but you know what i'm saying when when they're being dealt enough damage throughout the course of the movie those are the indications like these aren't humans but it's almost like it's it's similar in kind of like if you want to reference another kind of horror movie that kind of changed the overall characteristic and uh, physiognomy of, of uh, a certain monster, but it's like, you know, 28 days later where it's like, these aren't like what people think of as zombies, just as the same as like, these aren't what people think normally as being vampires. Yeah, exactly. Shall we rip this bitch apart? <laughs> yep, let's rip this hell. Description for uh, possibly those are not well versed with this movie or haven't seen it in a long time. A cowpoke by the name of Caleb uh, becomes romantically involved with a a young drifter by the name of May uh, who ends up uh, turning him into a vampire. He then becomes entangled in her makeshift vampire family. And as he learns the ropes of being a denizen of the night, uh, the gang is being pursued by police and Caleb's family. Um, anything you would add to that general synopsis? Um, the reception of the movie, uh, it grossed around three and a half million and uh, that came in under its budget of about $5 million. So we've got a classic example of a box office flop here that gained a cult status um, upon home video release. And just kind of as this movie sat with people, it became more adored over time. Um, I think even when it was in theaters, though, it was critically... Uh, a lot of people really liked it. I had a hard time actually finding any bad reviews of it i i just think um possibly going up with lost boys in a very close proximity may have heard it i don't really know but um 
yeah, it, it, it didn't make the money, but it, it, it got the love over, over the course of time. I really, I really equate this not to the quality of the movie lacking, but just bad timing, bad placement, really. And a difficult movie to market. Um, they have Bill Paxton as Severin on most all posters and cover art uh, with like, just like a, you know, a blood soaked mouth and leather jacket and all that. But uh, the real aesthetic of the movie is, is actually more, uh, more of a romantic westerny vampire kind of movie. So I could see people being off put by it because it is, it's weird. It is not, it name another movie like this. Uh, and you'd have to pull from two different genres to even come close. Yeah. It's really unique. Yes. Weird is a negative way to put it. I, I use the, I use weird lovingly, obviously. Um, shall we get into the good, the bad and the ugly? Let's do it. Fantastic. By ugly, I mean questionable. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Good. Um, as I'm sure you will agree, Bill Paxton and Lance Henrik, Lance Henriksen are like the Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen of this movie. <laughs> it is incredible giving just them complimenting each other really well. Um, I would, ju- I would take an entire Jesse Severin spinoff buddy road movie. <laughs> I would love that. I but aside from that, Lance Henriksen and Bill Paxton murder this movie. It they are just so in tune. Their characters are so lived in. Like it, it is incredible. Yeah, totally. Um, I would say just in general, just a great cast. I do have one uh, nitpick about the cast. It's more of just my own. <laughs> uh, prejudice that I have with one of the cast members, but overall, like in terms of performance, everybody here does a phenomenal job. So all around great cast, but those two in particular, I love those guys. And also, I mean, of the cast, I would say those two were probably the most notable ones to have a career that went on and, and, and prospered from there on out. The other, uh, the other actors and actresses, from what I know, there with uh, and there's another notable exception that maybe we'll, we can talk about. But by and large, they're kind of like they they don't really have any sort of like upwards like curve or any sort of like steady you know trajectory with future movies, as far as I know. But and we should state the obvious here. Uh, per her, I'm not sure if they were married at the time, but her boo thing. Um, uh, Catherine Bigelow's husband, James Cameron, right. um, per his suggestion, she actually uh, kind of cannibalized the Aliens cast because yeah. she wanted uh, individuals that were familiar with acting with one another and close-knit to kind of 
help the family of vampires uh, appear even closer yeah. without any sort of integration needed. Um, so obviously, Jesse, uh, Severin, and Diamondback are all aliens uh, cast people. Right. And so that's what I was going to say. The other maybe exception would be um, the actress who plays Diamondback, which is, uh, uh, what, what's her name? Oh, Jeanette Goldstein. I always forget her name. Um, having another notable appearance, if you will remember, in, in Terminator 2 later on. Yes, there's, yeah, there's lots of uh, James Cameron, Catherine Bigelow um, meshing going on especially at this time when they were uh when they were a a thing <laughs> well and it's interesting too with um Jeanette Gold, Goldstein I feel like in a lot of ways she is very much like a shapeshifter because every role that I see her in you for me at least I don't recognize her as being that actress this is a dramatic departure from aliens. I mean, the, the given the, the bleach blonde hair, but it is, uh, it, it's tough to even remember that she's in the, in aliens. Well, <laughs> this watching role, this and yeah, vice versa. Yeah. So this role is still being pretty, you know, being a pretty tough, hard ass, gritty, like female role is still somewhat more feminized than her role in aliens Ugh. where, she's just you know this muscly like meathead of a, of a woman you know what i mean so it's 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 like that when you a b those two roles it's still like wow it's a pretty dramatic shift i feel like it is she's very chameleon but but, but then in t2 uh, aside from when she you know becomes you know she gets murdered and then it, you know the the t2 takes on her appearance she just plays a mom. So it's like you got like three completely dramatically different sort of roles. Well, you get two really good performances in T2 because when she becomes the Terminator, yeah. it is such a great uh, turn of the switch um, right. playing the same character, but one's like, you know, yeah. possessed or whatever the fuck you want to call it. Right. <laughs> it's not even her. Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's a great performance. Yeah. No hyperbole whatsoever. This the bar scene in this movie is if you were to say what are some of your favorite scenes in all of cinema, that bar scene is a top five favorite scene in any movie ever. I like not even exaggerating. I don't put things on that pedestal easily, and I would rewatch the fucking shit out of this bar scene over and over and over again. It, it it just doesn't age. It's just so good. And it's Bill Paxton just dick swinging the whole time. I absolutely adore the bar scene in this movie. Yeah. Again, uh, when I watch that scene, it, it tense. I get tense. I, I tense up watching it because not only is it so realistic and you're just like waiting for like the worst to happen, but that whole interplay, that playful interplay that Bill Paxson has with the patrons where it's just like, it's really uncomfortable. And I just, I almost get triggered by it because I've been in situations like that, that don't obviously turn out as murderous where you're like dealing with this dude where you're just like, what do I do here, man? This guy, he's not right in the head, but he's fucking with me. And it's like, could go either way. It's like, if I say the wrong thing, he's going to fucking 
beat the shit out of me or if I say <laughs> the right thing, he's going to be my buddy. So yeah, it's, it's great to watch and just the way it escalates, you know, it's just like, it's so fucking crazy. I mean, Bill Paxton is putting together like not to, continually make sports references but it's like michael jordan's last game as a bull like game six versus the utah jazz in the 98 finals it's like a 20 and 10 he takes the last three shots he makes all fucking three shots he makes the steal to win the game like it is an insane performance i mean he's just riffing the whole time it's funny it's terrifying it's fucking violent it's like it's almost like a poetic fucking dance. I, I, mm. I, it's like other, I'm like out of body when I'm watching this scene and it, it, I've seen it so many times. I was shocked when I watched it this last time, how completely riveted I still am. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. 100%. The, uh, <laughs> this is, <laughs> The stuntman who runs from the motel room to the van on fire deserves like a lifetime achievement award. I mean, he's literally, you can see part of his like head and neck and face, like clearly a flame as he's like ducking into that van. I just wanted to give a shout out to whoever the fuck that was, because that was a, an expert scene. <laughs> yeah. Um, I like the familial dynamic that the gang takes on um, specifically in the motel when Diamondback is kind of adapts a motherly role. And um, I, I, and she's telling Homer like, you know, uh, almost like a mom in a, on a, on a vacation, like telling him what to do with the TV and what channels to watch and you know, all that. Yeah. Um, But outside of that, they're not a family. Um, in a traditional sense, but I, I like the familial connection that they all have. And it feels like I said, uh, on the top, very lived in all the characters, they feel like they've been traveling together for millennia. Yeah. And I love that. I love that aspect. Um, when Jesse gets shot and coughs up that bullet and hands it back to the dad. I, <laughs> so fucking good. That is, that's just pure <laughs> Henriksen. I love that fucking scene. Um, this is in my good and my questionable. The, I, I like the logical, like medical approach to an otherwise fantastical problem. Like, the the problem being uh you're a fucking vampire the medical solution being let's do a blood transfusion i like the like common sense solution to it it doesn't this for being a vampire movie this movie doesn't have like we kind of discussed a little bit any real like uh magical elements to it other than yeah they're they're like impervious to um you know getting killed in traditional methods but for the most part it takes on more of a western vibe, more more so than like a magical lean. Yeah, and that blood transfusion scene I have in my questionable, so I don't want to talk about it anymore. But we'll bring it yes, up. it's we'll also in my questionable. I'm sure we both have. I, I yeah, we both rang the same bell there. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to piggyback a little bit on what you. Yes, yeah, so I was going to say. Tell me what you like. Yeah, when you're talking about the the bullet spitting scene just in general, some real choice violence scenes here and, and very uh, ingenious 
violent scenes, if you ask me. Uh, one other one being uh, murdering someone with spurs. That's pretty sick. Yes. Just yes. slicing somebody open with fucking spurs. That's great. I also love the part where at the end where there's the standoff after Caleb is human again uh, and Homer has kidnapped his sister once again and when Diamondback goes to throw the knife at Caleb and he ducks and it goes straight into Jesse's mouth. It works too. It doesn't look, it doesn't look fake. I I like Uh, it. It works. It's so sick. I love that part. So yeah, a lot of really choice violent scenes. The, the, all the scenes where they're like on fire and burning up. I was going to say also, um, when you watch Caleb, when he's sick from the vampirism, it makes you kind of queasy. It's like you like are like, oh, this this is you feel like nauseous. He's got like heroin sweats. Totally. He's he totally looks like he's dope sick. And I'm almost wondering if there might be some sort of anecdotal sort of relationship that Bigelow had to creating that that aspect of the story. If she knew people that, you know, were addicted, because I feel like I could see that being a thing, you know, where she knew people in her her life and so she had a first-hand experience of what dope sickness you know did to somebody i could see her uh in his ear about that yeah it, it it's uh yeah it's it's disgusting <laughs> yeah so that's some of the other things that i had um if you want to i'll hand it off to you for a few more if you got any i'm i was going to say being the uh the audio uh fan that you are <laughs> Yeah, oh, that's another thing I was wondering. Yes, the, the Tangerine Dream sound. I was going to let you talk about Tangerine Dream, yeah. Ooh, magnifique, magnifique. It's so good because it's, it's a good combination of, you know, the ambient, atmospheric, proggy aspect that they're known for, but with, like, the cool rock part, you know? so It's beautiful. It, I, I absolutely adore their piece they're there what they did with this movie but what they do in, in in lots of different movies i when i when i see tangerine dream at the beginning credits i know that the fucking soundtrack's gonna fucking rule yeah so the soundtrack's super sick another thing that i was gonna mention this is a very sexy movie this is a very sexual and sexual not just in a hetero way but even going back to that bar scene the way severin who is a very masculine character is flirting with that just clearly just hetero gnarly biker dude he's like he's like play playing with him like and even when he feasts on the other guy he's like oh i i I like them when they're shaved right that's (laughs) yeah so same you know so there's and that's that's a thing that is predominant in a lot of vampire cinema and stories in general throughout time is you know there is a sensual sexuality to it that is it's it it can be pansexual it's not yes they take all comers sexually exactly so it doesn't matter so even in this movie which is super again in a lot of ways masculine and testosterone it still has that fluidity to it that you would you would expect in vampire tales which and may is a fucking babe like she's like this like like ethereal woman that yeah in your introduction to her she's uh just standing there like licking an ice cream cone like an ice and, so it's so yeah. suggestive 
yeah it's from good the, from the jump you're you're just you're down as fuck with this chick so yeah Catherine bigelow plays it smartly too because you you see caleb uh go up to her immediately and it, just start hitting on her any other capacity you wouldn't buy it unless you as a viewer were also compelled to talk to her. I mean, she makes it to where you're, you as a viewer are like, holy shit, I want to talk to that girl. And so when Caleb does it, it's not a leap of, it's, it's not a, a leap for you. You're like, yeah. yeah, I could see, I could see why someone would be hitting on her like off the, from the jump. Right. And also the scene where they're before he gets bitten and they're in the pickup truck <laughs> and there's that really tense back and forth. I, I told my my girlfriend at the time. I'm like, listen, I'm really trying not to say sexist when I say this, but this totally is like if you've ever went to a bar and took home a, someone at three in the morning, you yeah. know, and like, and then you get in a car, you get home, and then they start like having these wild mood swings, and you're like, oh fuck, what did I get myself into? Like <laughs> again, another triggering sort of scene where I'm like that felt like that way to me. And and I feel like that was also intentional as well. It's like, you know, when you do that, like when you're like desperate at the end of the night and you just, you know, you're like, you're ready to go. You're fucking, you want to get laid, find someone hot. And then you find out like real quick, you're like, Oh man, I fucked up. And in this movie, this dude like fucked up real bad. Cause <laughs> he, you know, he, he got way more than he bargained for. And that's the touch you get with, uh, I think that's a, a female touch that you get with, with a female director that you more than likely wouldn't get, yeah. um, with a male director, mm-hmm. um, bad. It's obviously hard to come up with bad with, with a movie uh, of this capacity, but, um, speaking of people that are bad at their jobs, the, the motel shootout produces one death <laughs> right it's almost unfathomable with the amount of people shooting at each other how only one person is even directly shot well no caleb shot in the legs a few times but the one cop at the beginning is is given it hard in the chest with the shotgun from severin and then nobody else dies yeah <laughs> It's crazy. I, um, in terms of a shootout, it's a bad shootout. I can't imagine a shootout where it's just like there's that many, there's that few deaths and that and that many people just riddling bullets at each other. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, the CGI when Homer bursts into flames is as bad as it gets. It's not. It's not good. Yeah. Um, which is crazy because they use a lot of practical fire effects throughout. Whenever they burst into flames, it looks great, but the Homer one is just like right on his face. So the flames can't be like, you know, they, they can't use any sort of real flames or stunt man. So it, the CGI was, was not great. Um, and the only other bad I had was the ending is just kind of abrupt. Um, and it's kind of whatever, but uh, you know, when, when we are talking bad on these kinds of movies, it gets real nitpicky as you know. Yeah, I actually kind of like that abruptness to it. Um, so that's not really a problem for me. But I see what you're saying that, you know. The I think resu- I just never <sighs> want this movie to end. <laughs> true, true. Absolutely. I would have never been satisfied, no matter how they ended it. Well, and I think it ends on this whole note that, you know, he 
he rehumanizes May, but you get this impression there right at the end that she's not into it. That's what I get. It's like, she, you know, she's, she's going to wake up and be like, I'm not a vampire anymore and maybe not be stoked on it. Whereas, you know, it's, it's a selfish thing for Caleb to do essentially is to take her from her family and then turn her into something that maybe she was running away from to begin with. She voluntarily became a vampire, obviously. So, well, he, the aspect that I do like about the ending is he unwittingly does to her what she does to him initially. That's a real uh, turn there. I mean, he didn't ask to be a vampire as much as she didn't ask to be a human. So, but he's doing it out of love. He's not doing it out of spite or malice. Uh, he's doing it out of their real connection that they develop. So I, I do like that the film ends on the same button that it, it starts with only ro- a role reversal. That's, that's pretty cool. Yeah, no, I, that, that's true. The way you put it that way, I, I agree. Now I've almost talked myself out of that even being bad. Now I like the ending. So whatever, <laughs> <laughs> take that off. What, what do you have? So bad. I, I, I mentioned this. Yeah, not due to the performance. I just, whenever I've seen any movies, and this dude's not in many movies, but particularly this role and another role, the kid who plays Homer, I just want to punch him. He's got a real punchable, just snotty, shit little face. And he always, because he's also in The River's Edge. And he basically... Okay. I was going to ask, what else is he in? He, he's in other things. He's not in a lot of stuff. But, you know, when he, was a, when he was a teenager, he was in those two. And he was also in uh, a couple episodes of Highway to Heaven, which I remember when I was a kid. But <laughs> um, if anybody remembers Michael Landon's Highway to Heaven. Um, it's just, he always plays just, again, those kind of, just like, cocksure kind of... Snotty little fucks, and he's just got a, a face. It's just like uh, I just want to hit him. Um, in, in this in this capacity, though, is it his? Uh, you know, that's the role, I suppose. Though sure. that he's going for, so I can't really uh, delineate between. Yeah, him as an actor and and him as a character because that's kind of the the character is kind of a, a snotty little fuck totally and it's same in river's edge i again, so is he doing a great job or do you still not like it? i i i i hear you and i agree with you and i'm all but i'm also conflicted because it's like i guess he did his fucking job no that's what i mean he does a fine job i just there's something about him that rows me the wrong way <laughs> it always he has fe- he feels like a character he feels like he should be on like roseanne or something absolutely yeah, he is definitely out of that that world as well. You know, yeah, just this just this juvenile adolescent little little shit. White yeah. white white trash blue collar collar little shit. Um aside from that, this is more like also in the questionable um Caleb plays this character. There he's a part of this character trope that appears also let's say in interview with a vampire where you have the the victim that's made vampire that is an unwitting participant and is just such a wimp just such a weenie boy about it it's just like man 
suck it up, dude. It's like it's like <laughs> it's like Louie in fucking interview with a vampire. Was like, I don't want to be a vampire. I want to eat rats. I don't want to kill any. But it's like motherfucker. Like you should just, be thankful. Just be a denizen of the night. Yeah, be like an, you, and then just fucking do it. Be man. an evil, sadistic motherfucker. The all bets are off. The rules out the window, man. Just just ride with and this you get shit. To live forever. Oh, how poor you. But this is the thing I will I will give them credit for. It, in those capacities and those roles in those movies, they also put them in a situation or a scenario where they're supposed to make dinner out of people that are actually pretty likable. Now, see, if I was in this scenario, I would be selective because there's a lot of shitty assholes in the world. There's plenty of motherfuckers that you could feast on that whatever, fuck them. But like, you know, like the 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 semi driver guy, he seems pretty cool. I wouldn't want to kill him either. He did seem uh, on, on a, an incredible amount of uppers. <laughs> <laughs> right. The, the Cajun semi driver. He seemed like he was, you know, he's a down dude. I wouldn't want to kill him either. I'd be like, I agree. That's a good point, too, because, uh, yeah, you don't. I mean, you're for to ease you into being a vampire. They should just, uh, you know, I guess this database didn't exist back then, but get on like a pedophile database and just go, fuck, <laughs> right. go fucking ham. <laughs> yeah. Or, I mean, you would feel bad at all. No, I would, I would say, uh, to use a reference to, uh, your, uh, your city that I'm familiar with, just go up to broad ripple on a fucking weekend where I'm, where I live, go up to Capitol Hill. There's plenty of fucking frat boy dickheads that yeah, you could shit. that you could use for the munchies. Go go fucking chow on some butler piece of shit, you know? That's true. I would go why I would just walk into Chumley's and then just do like a, <laughs> a vampire bar crawl. Exactly. You got a fucking whole buffet there. <laughs> Chomping at the fucking bit. Uh, so those uh, are, that's it. That's all I got. Uh, yeah, there's not that very much bad. <laughs> questionable i have a real good question right off the top uh is homer a pedophile right okay yes this ties into basically my question too is essentially the the overarching question is the treatment of a what is quote-unquote adult vampires to child vampires who are theoretically also adults i would have no question if he wasn't so Twitter painted <laughs> over that over Caleb's little sister. I mean, he is like enamored at he's trying to wine dine in 69 in front of the rest of the fucking family in the motel. Like, yeah, if he was just if he saw her out at the uh, Coke machine and just used her as strictly food, then that that doesn't make me bring this into question. But the idea that he is an ancient vampire and is just a, he got fucking wet with right. the idea of courting this little girl. Yes. And, and again, I don't want to use too many like interview with the vampire references, but there is another corollary where, you know, in that movie, um, the Kirsten Dunst character, yes, Lyd- precisely. L- Lydia, I think I, I can't remember her. It exactly. is. Yeah. So she's turned when she's a child. And so she's an a- ageless immortal child. So that would be, you know, research it's claudia i'm sorry claudia thank you claudia it did sound close and it was a it had an e at the end but yeah that brings the question any of you vampirologists out there maybe you can answer this if, if you hear this 
when someone is turned as a child, does it effectively stunt them completely, you know, so emotionally, mentally, will they always be a child or does it only stunt their growth? So I, so that being said, I can buy him just being like a kid that is, has a crush on another kid. If he just is frozen basically as that sort of person for eternity. But if he is, if he has the mind of a man, a grown man in the body of a child, then yeah, that's, that's weird. And again, we're given more evidence because if he doesn't say, quote, you don't know what it's like to be a big man in this little body. I mean, exactly. he says that. So like, if you, omit, if you omit that quote, then you might, I, I see your case, but there's evidence up to that point that makes you really question when that scene happens. You're like, Ugh. yeah, that's a big, big question. So yeah, all you vampireologists and also all you pedophiles at midnightflixpod <laughs> at gmail.com. Well, what we were just saying about the whole, you know, sex offender <laughs> list. <laughs> hey, if it's a if it's a listener, then they're valued here. <laughs> you're safe with us. You're <laughs> safe with us. Your secret's safe with us, pedo. Um <laughs> sorry. This is, like, it's like, this is like a confessional booth. This is this is dirty. Um yeah, the question that I'm sure you came up with, what is Caleb's father's background that leads us to believe that he could perform a full body blood transfusion in a in a backwoods barn? And where does all the blood come from? How'd they find the perfect match? Uh, all those questions. Yeah, there's, there's a whole lot of DIY uh, physicianship going on there that I feel like is way out of Caleb's dad's fucking pay grade. And not I, only that, but when May gets the blood transfusion, I don't even remember seeing the dad around. It's like Caleb does the whole thing. Yeah, so they just both have this, like, what, family-run side hustle of blood transfusion? All you needed to, to aid this unbelievable jump is, jump in logic, is just merely a a a scene towards the beginning where dad is like doing blood transfusions for some of the farm animals. I mean, I don't even know. It doesn't even have to be complicated. That would be enough to even hint at it. But without even that, you're just, you're just, it's unbelievable. Right. Yeah. So I could buy that. He does something, uh, you know, in, in the, in the setting of his livestock that would give him some experience to do it. But yeah, still begs the question, where do you get that human blood from? You're not putting and the right type. You have to have the right. You can't just blood transfuse with um, a, a real hodgepodge of blood, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that that's the biggest question in the movie. <laughs> Do you have any questions? Uh, yeah, I have a couple. This is going back to talking about uh, Homer again, but also May. This idea that they're both just obsessed with mortal humans to the point where they're willing to ruin their own lives and livelihood you're immortal like if they are if they're not on board fuck them why are you why are you sweating it to get these two people i mean it also begs the question what are they just have they always just been alone have they been alone forever you know i i would expect that being the the nomadic tribe that they are they're able to fuck wherever they want. They want to fuck or hang. You know, I, I would just chalk it up to the abject loneliness and the specifically you hear Homer say like, 
well, you got to turn Caleb and now I'm going to turn his sister and, you know, in a tit, tit, in a tit for tat kind of thing, it, it, it he reeks of jealousy that yeah. may has found uh companionship. Um, Severin doesn't, don't give a fuck about any of that. Uh, Jesse kind of has Diamondback, not kind of. Jesse and Diamondback are definitely a thing. Yeah. Uh, so Homer might see the uh, walls closing in on him there, and it, couple that with a big man in uh, in a little man body, he might see that maybe that's why he gets so enthralled. Maybe he sees that as his only chance because he knows he can't just swing dick at anybody. Right. <laughs> Yeah, so this is making a little more sense now. That we're talking this out a little bit. I feel like this happens. We talk things out. That's why we ask these questions. It's we try. True. It helps. We develop our own scenarios. Um, let's see what else. I already covered the sensitive vampire thing. Another one that I had. This was um, more or less a meta question for this movie, not one necessarily about the plot itself, but. I read that uh, Michael Bean, you know, Michael Bean that played. Yeah. Okay. So Michael Bean was supposed to be in this movie. He was supposed to play the role of Severin, I think. Jesse. He was supposed to play Jesse. Okay. <laughs> I read that he t- turned it down because he thought the script was confusing. That to me, yeah. I don't understand what's confusing about it. It's a family I- of vampires that kills people and one of them falls in love with somebody. Yeah, he didn't, for whatever reason, didn't like the script. I will, I will say, um, having done a, a, a a senior thesis amount of, of study on this movie over the course of decades now, uh, Catherine Bigelow's script, she storyboarded this out, um, specifically because it doesn't have a lot of dialogue. So I could see possibly getting a script and being a little bit confused because a lot of it is, is played uh, the actors playing off of one another. And, and a lot of it is not necessarily dialogue being exchanged. So the, the script itself is kind of bare bones in terms of dialogue. But then once she storyboarded it out, there was more of a vision there. But Lance Henriksen jumped on this uh, immediately. So yeah, I mean, he's no fucking dummy. Yeah, I just think that uh, Michael Bean's just a wimp. No, yeah, yeah. He, he should have been Caleb. I don't know why he's trying out for Jesse. Right, totally, absolutely. Not only uh, tried out, was offered the part, and didn't like, just didn't like it. He turned it down. They, uh, Catherine Bigelow, still wanted him. Yeah. Anyways, so that's all I got. That's a good one. Well, I'll be goddamn. Shit kicked your head. This is. Uh, this is a real feast or famine category. We're about to move into quotes here. And I feel like I could quote this movie until I turn blue in the face and still have more to give. <laughs> well, and to be clear, I'm sure you will agree. A lot of the quotes come from our main man, Severin. Not to say that there aren't quotes from Jesse, but it's really those two. Those are the quotable motherfuckers in this movie. It's Severin centric. I'm looking at my list to see if I even have, I think I have one, two, maybe two Jesse quotes. Yeah. The rest are all Severin. Um, like I, like we were talking about in the good category, when he walks from the moment he walks into that bar scene, it is quote after quote 
after quote, after quote, after quote, everyone's dead and they leave. It's just like endless quotes. So we'll just rifle through pretty much every dial, everything he says. He walks into the bar. Well, I'll be goddamn shit kicker. (laughs) I love that line. Knocks the dude's shot over. Give me a couple shots of whatever. (laughs) I'm going to struggle to get through this. Give me a couple shots of whatever donkey piss you're shoving down these cocksuckers' throats. <laughs> that, that's like quote of the, of the movie. Um, and then the, the uh, biker guy confronts him about spilling his shot, and he says, why don't you lick it up off the bar meatball? Um, and uh, a little later on, when a little bit more, bit more mayhem is happening, he says, this is the best time I've had since I nailed your mama in the back of your daddy's truck. Uh, then he, and then he fucking sucks that dude dry and says, it's finger licking good. Yeah. <laughs> and then to top that all off, I guess he was, uh, Bill Paxton was researching, uh, like Texas one-liners, like, uh, colloquial, colloquialisms that are specific to Texas. Right. And that's that he ends it with that guy smell like a dead pole cat. Yeah. Which and, I, don't, I don't know what that means, but it's, and, it's wonderful. And, and just all those quotes when I hear him again, anecdotally to me, not just makes me think of people I've run up with, but I also worked construction too, where if you've ever worked construction, you work around people like that. It's just like one liner after one liner after one, like yes. people just like, ribbon and fucking with each other all day and it's it's usually like hilarious so totally reminded me of that as well absolutely what did you have um after now that i've run down that bar scene um i actually didn't write down a whole lot um but the one i did write at the top was jesse uh said to that that uh waitress there in the bar said your skin is as soft as a preacher's belly Oh, damn. Yeah. It's, it's so I think I was so like feverishly writing down Bill Paxton <laughs> quotes that any, any, anything that anyone else said went under the wayside. That's a good one. Yeah. That's just like a multi-layered, just like gnarly, creepy line. I love it. Yeah. Because, because it's like, it's not only is it in reference to him, you know, being a creep, he's creeping on this waitress before you even like know that he's going to kill her but he's creeping on her so he can slit her throat, but also makes a reference of a preacher's belly being sawed. Like what kind of I shit? Could, I could see a preacher like kneading his own belly, like a cat making fucking biscuits. <laughs> yeah. But it's just like, you, you know, <laughs> but it also, it kind of, what it says that Jesse's been getting down with some soft bellied preachers. That's, so yeah. It's, it's, a, I it's, could see it. It's a very, it's a very loaded I love it. Thing to say. So that's that's really all I had. I mean, I figured you would pick up slack. That makes me think of another questionable that I had. How would that? How would Homer have even been let in that bar? <laughs> I guess with all the other fucking crazy shit that's going on, that's the least of their worries at that point. Yeah, I just chalked that up as like this is just some shithole dive out in the middle of nowhere. They don't give a fuck who comes in there. Yeah, that's that's fair. So. Um, some other good ones. Uh, Severin says, I'm down to my last inch of skin. I love that one. <laughs> uh, Severin says, Hey Jesse, how old are you? And he says, let's just put it this way. I fought for the South. I love that one. Yeah. Um, and that's going to come up in my uh, wiki wormhole. Uh, Lance Henriksen did a, a deep dive with this character. Nice. Um, let me see. <laughs> Here's a Jesse one to round it out. Uh, the last sound you hear and you're on your way to hell is going to be your gut snapping like a bullwhip. I like that one. Yeah. A lot. Also good. <laughs> but I will 
give it the quote of the movie and one of my favorite quotes maybe ever is uh give me a couple shots of whatever donkey piss you're shoving down these cocksuckers it's so good it's so good because like that's a line you want to say to a fucking bartender when you walk you big dick swing and with a hillbilly standing right next sitting right next to you that you just spilled his shot it's so it's so confrontation it's so like aggro i love how he gets he goes in there just like on 10 i love it shall we move on to our uh dick miller award which we award to a character in the movie doing the most with the least um in terms of a role who do you have so i had a few people that i was thinking of this one this was more of an opportunity for me to kind of wanted to use this to talk about uh, some of these bit bit parts in this movie that the, the, these actors, uh, where they come from. I, I didn't really have a strong Dick Miller. I'll say that. But I did write down a couple people as possibilities. Troy Evans, because uh, Troy Evans plays the detective that fucks with Caleb at the bus station. And that dude has been in a hundred movies and he always plays a cop. Yeah. He's always plays bit, bit, bit roles as cops. Cause he's just such a cop looking dude. Yeah. That's so a good call. I had that guy. Um, I had Roger Aaron Brown who played the, the Cajuns, uh, semi truck driver. Yes. Uh, he's been in a few things. He was in uh RoboCop two and some other things. Yes. Yeah. I recognize him from that, but the other one, and then I'll let, I'll hand it off to you was James LaGrosse. And the reason why I brought him up, and he's the the young buck, he's the young dude that gets... Uh, Playing billiards at the bar. Yeah, the one that, that escapes, the Caleb yeah. lets escape. But that guy, he has been in a lot of stuff, but particularly for me, the reason why I like that guy is because he plays, he plays uh, Michael in Phantasm 2 when they did that jump in the casting when they had... Uh, a Michael Baldwin in the first one and all the rest of, of them, but just not in that movie. So, and that is, um, that is my Dick Miller is, is James. I think it's pronounced LeGro. I don't know. Or James LeGro. Uh, yeah. For that specific reason, I recognized him immediately from being in phantasm too. Um, because like you pointed out, a Michael Baldwin plays, uh, Mike Bannister in one and then the rest of them, but then they, they, I don't, for whatever reason, they didn't get him for the second one. So he filled in, but also he's in point break and drugstore cowboy. Yes. So, and yeah, I love, he's, a, he's a good yeah, Dick Miller. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's played some pretty cool roles. So it's like, it's, it's definitely a, that guy. I, as soon as I saw him in the pool, in the playing pool, I was like, Holy shit. Yeah. This guy. Well, it's funny too, because Phantasm two, I think came out before this and he plays, he a pretty, you know, he plays a significant role. He's the leading man. And, one of the leading men in, in Phantasm 2. And then he's put in this movie where he's a nobody. He's there for like. This came out the year after. I just looked it up because that's a good question. This uh, Near Dark came out in 87. Phantasm 2 is 88. Okay. So, yeah. Well, whatever then. So he was. Well, still- but perhaps because of this, he was maybe given uh, Phantasm 2. Right. I don't know. But also a guy that I feel like somewhere along the lines was trying to be prepped. We talk about people that have been prepped to be leading men at one point or another, cause they have certain, they have a certain, you know, je ne sais quoi about them, mm-hmm. never, but, <laughs> but they never, but they never quite make it. I feel like he's one of those type of people also. 
He like yeah, un- like you're like old boy from uh, Streets of Fire. Yeah, he unwittedly gets relegated to to bit character or bit B, purgatory, B, <laughs> bit B movie status. Yeah. even though he he was shooting for uh for uh higher for aspirations. Yeah. So anyway, so that's what I got is that guy. <laughs> the Bill Paxton Award. Yeah. I was gonna say, uh, who, who are we gonna replace Bill Paxton I, with? I came up with Bill a fun Paxton. game. Okay. I was trying to think of actors around that era that would have been cool as Severin. Uh, so specifically, who would we replace instead of this category is usually uh, a movie that doesn't have Bill Paxton in it. And we try to fit Bill Paxton into the cast somehow. But since he is in this, I try to come up with some actors that may have could have played Severin and um, done a cool job with it. albeit no one would have done a better job than Bill Paxton. So I'll just put preface with that. Um, I came up with Christian Slater. My favorite of the list, Kevin Bacon. I thought that Kevin Bacon could have done something cool with that. Hmm. I came up with Swayze. I thought fucking Swayze would have been tight too. Um, And Emilio Estevez. Those are the actors I came up with. That's interesting. I would not have picked any of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, over Bill Paxton, no, neither would I. Well, but just I, a, a Swayze Severin. Oh my God. Yeah, I just don't see it, man. Because none of them, I don't, I've never seen them in any it's role. It's because Bill Paxton knocked it out of the park. I obviously also wouldn't put Bill Paxton in Roadhouse, for instance. But, you know. Fair enough. Given, given the time, I was trying to think of actors that could have possibly, yes, I, yes, none of them would have filled those shoes. Did you come up with something else for this category since it's kind of a weird category given no, that it's in this? No, but just right and not prior to, but right now, thinking about it, yeah, Kiefer Sutherland. <laughs> well, I, and the only reason I didn't put that down is obviously because, um, yeah. Uh, yeah i no that's i don't have anybody else really i i'm trying to think of other because he's in lost boys is what we were saying but we looked at each other's in in the eyes and and knew we were saying the same thing you know know, no 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 no. you know what i actually i do have one that i just thought of um, okay that i think actually would work really well um possibly hang on one second I'm, I'm with bated breath. Yeah, I think this this guy in particular would work really well. I just want to make sure that <laughs> I'm not an idiot here. So this is who I would pick. I think this would work really well, actually. Picture this. Judd Nelson. <sighs> no? I don't like it. Okay, well, never Why? mind. Why? Defend your opinion. Because he plays kind of like a... He plays a tough you know, thuggish, you know, delinquent in the breakfast club. I don't know. Maybe like with a few more years under his belt, which would have been between, you know, that, that movie and this, he, you know, he get a little bit more grit to him so he could play like a Severin. We, I think we both are in agreement that we can't replace Bill Paxton and we tried and failed. Fine. Fuck it. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. So, moving on. Let's uh we're in the home stretch here. Wiki wormhole. Let's go down. 
Um, the movie uh, was a 47 day shoot, absolutely grueling because 40 of those days were complete night shoots. Um, almost everybody in this cast uh, became nocturnal creatures uh, just specifically for this movie. Um, Lance Henriksen wanted to play Severin originally. Um, so that would have been bizarre. Uh, glad it went to our boy, Billy P. Um, yeah, absolutely. Both Johnny Depp and DB Sweeney auditioned for Caleb. Um, as we already talked about, Michael Bain, Michael Bean was offered the role of Jesse Hooker, but turned it down. He wasn't satisfied with the script for whatever reason. Um, Henriksen for this role, I have multiple stories that will blow your mind. <laughs> He got real deep with this. He purposely went down to about 140 pounds for the role. He got these acrylic nails put on, which he broke off with like a pair of pliers. So they would be all like jagged and haggard and shit. Um, in full character, everybody else flew out to the set for the shoot. Lance Henriksen decided he uh, would drive out to the shoot. In full character, he picked up a hitchhiker and and purposely creeped this dude out in some sort of like weird meta acting performance. He like demanded that this dude roll him a cigarette. <laughs> and then every time he rolled it, he would hand it to him and he would throw it out the window and say, you call that a cigarette? Roll me another one. And he says, quote, I was hoping this guy would shriek and beg me to let him out of the car. And then I knew I was getting the roll down. Right. <laughs> That's amazing. I love it. He's he's a that is crazy. Consequently, consequently, also, Paxton and Henriksen got pulled over also in full character makeup for speeding. Um, the cop got so freaked out by Lance Henriksen that at one point he put his hand on his gun, but instead just let them go without a ticket. <laughs> <laughs> That's to amazing. Which Bill Paxton remembers the incident as being the most uncomfortable he's been in a long time. He said that Lance Henriksen was literally driving this cop to fucking do some shit. And Bill Paxton said he's never been that uncomfortable in his life. And imagine Bill Paxton leather jacket. I'm sure they have, you know, I'm sure they look fucking crazy. That, that, that is such a weird, crazy story. I love it. Paxton in his whole, like, you know, got his fucking wig split, blood soaked makeup, um, from the end of the movie where he gets hit by that semi. There was a train on set that would come at the same time of, of night, every night. And he went up to the conductor one night and said, there's been a terrible accident. Shit, I'm all right, but you should see what happened to the other guys. <laughs> <laughs> see, I love that because that just shows, you know, there really isn't that big of a difference between the characters he plays on screen and how he actually was. No, no. Yeah. In, in the, uh, in the, the DVD that I watch has like a documentary on the movie. That's just absolutely wonderful with all the actors. And Bill Paxton describes uh, growing up as a, as a hoodlum in somewhere in Texas um, and saying that he's always had like a real problem with authority and authority figures. And so when he was given this role, he got to really tap into like, a deeper part of himself that has always been there. And yeah. so him and Lance Henriksen just like 
terrorizing innocent people as well as cops <laughs> like it's just so tight and so par for the course yeah it just sounds like a blast to be able to hang out with those dudes dude yeah. absolutely <laughs> the last little tidbit that i have i could go on endlessly um but this one's really cool uh lance henrickson in preparing for the role actually came up to Catherine bigelow and said that he had an entire backstory for his character, which is why they added, ended up adding that civil war line. Um, but he describes the story in the documentary. He says that, uh, during the civil war, Jesse was on a ship that, uh, that drifted into a marsh and most of the crew was dying and bleeding out. Um, and that Jesse's character is like ashore, and these harpies or shadow creatures are feeding on all of the dying men. Um, and as Jesse is lying there, his chest is open and all this hot, like steam is coming out into the night air. And a harpy goes over to Jesse and takes pity on him and turns him into a vampire. And this is the story he pitched to Catherine Bigelow. And Catherine Bigelow was like speechless. Cause she was like, you came up with all this just for your character. Like we haven't even started shooting the movie. <laughs> That's amazing. I love it. It's crazy. What did you come up with in your research? So I honestly didn't have time to do a lot of research for this. So, uh, which I is came what up. the format of this is usually. Sure, absolutely. Uh, I had one key one that I wanted to bring up. Um, that always I've always loved about this movie is, um, have you ever seen the theatrical release of Pink Floyd's The Wall? No, you've no. never seen it. Okay, so I love that movie um, as much as I love that album. The movie is fantastic. Bob Geldof does a great job in it. But a little bit of trivia here: May, the actress that plays May, she has a bit part in Pink Floyd's The Wall. Where oh. She she plays a groupie. Oh so, shit! So if you're familiar with the narrative and how the that that album and that movie, how it progresses, there is the point, the kind of tipping point where the, the character of Pink, he's he's just lost his mind. Or he's, he's This is where he's on the brink of losing his mind. He's about to go over the edge. And he brings his groupie up to his hotel room. And both on, because, you know, obviously the, the, the movie mimics exactly the narrative and dialogue of, of, the, of the album. But there's this part where the groupie comes up and she's like, oh, wow, are these all your guitars? And she's just like kind of inanely talking to Pink and he's just zoning out. He's just like he's completely checked out. He doesn't want anything to do with this woman. It's like it's just completely like he's going through the motions to even have a groupie in his hotel room. And she's like, do you want to take a bath? And she's just trying to flirt with him. And he and eventually he freaks out on her and starts fucking just smashing his guitars. That groupie is played by the same actress in Pink Floyd's Wall. <laughs> Damn. So That's crazy. And Pink Floyd and that and the wall came out the movie came out like five years before this. Yeah, I just the, looked it yeah, up just to yeah. see how young she would have been. Right. Yeah. So it didn't come out simultaneously. So it was actually pretty close proximity to this movie. Yeah. 82 and 87 it said so. Yep. That's all I got. Tight. No, I love that. Bring yeah. it to the table. Well, we're here at the end. Uh, so let's rate this movie, shall we? Yeah. 
In terms of a midnight movie, where on the clock would you rate this in terms of how close to a midnight movie it is? I'd give this another, I feel like it's a midnight movie. Maybe a little bit over, just a smidge. I put 11.30. Okay. I feel like... Yeah, it's very close to being midnighty, but it's not. Uh, if you know, if I'm gonna give shit like Castle Freak and Ichi the Killer midnight ratings, then stuff that is not as bonkers as that, I feel like I need to maybe dial back a little bit. But yeah, but we even we we made the adjustment where we said that those movies are way beyond midnight. If we we're gonna, that's true. Those are three a.m. If we're gonna break our, if we're gonna, or, you know, be a little bit more plastic with our rules, they're like. Well, that's why the clock system works because we can give something beyond a midnight rating. Yeah, okay, I'll give this a midnight. As so well. I say it's a midnight movie because it's got some it's got some choice violence. Oh, there's some savagery in it for sure. Scene. So it should it should be midnight after maybe after a little bit. So Absolutely. Yes. Um, and I put uh, we come up with an arbitrary. Uh, <laughs> Uh, item from the movie, uh, uh, iconic imagery from the movie to rate it out of five. I came up with five bloody boot spurs. That's what I was going to say too. So there we Fuck go. Yeah. Ding, ding, We're ding, ding, ding. Vibing. So out of five bloody boot spurs, what would you give this? This for me, and I think this might be the first one for me. This to me is a five out of five for sure. This movie is so fucking sick. Um, I think the only other one that I might have given a perfect rating might have been Manhunter, but I, I think you even gave Manhunter like a four and a half, but yeah, I don't remember. I don't remember you giving a five out yet. Yeah, this one's definitely like this is a five. Like this is almost for me. Uh, this is a near other than like those weird plot holes about like the blood transfusion shit. This even is like that, a, yeah, like a flawless movie in a lot of ways. I'm right there with you, brother. I gave it a five out of five. I couldn't. I I I'm surprised we've kept this episode as as short as we have because uh i could endlessly talk about this movie i absolutely adore it uh i think Catherine bigelow is super underrated male female doesn't matter as a director she's absolutely wonderful and and this culminates with a lot of really cool career arcs you got bill paxton you got Henriksen. i mean lots of cool shit going on in this movie and the replay value as i said in the beginning is just Absolutely tremendous. And actually this this conversation makes me I, I think we're just gonna go downstairs and watch that bar scene, make my wife sit through it. <laughs> just rewatch it just, <laughs> just on a loop. Just talking about it is has made me giddy for it again. Um yeah, but, yeah. I, right I, was, there. I will say too, I guess like when I when I'm thinking back to the manhunter thing, the reason why I didn't give it probably a perfect score is because it's still it's kind of dated in a certain ways, whereas this movie isn't really dated. I mean, it came out around the same time, but it's a lot more uh, it, it it stays fresher, I feel like. And to use a Bill Paxton quote, these kinds of shit kicker heaven towns exist still. <laughs> yeah. Like it, this is still what rural ass fucking Texas and Oklahoma looks like and feels like. Uh, so yeah, for all intents and purposes, th- this, this does not age. I mean, it is just as, as wonderful as it was when I first saw it uh, as a teenager as it is now and it doesn't it, so much time has passed and it yeah I can't gush enough I, I fucking adore this movie yeah and you would think like that there might be some aspects of the wardrobe that you know date it like there is with say like Manhunter or some of these other movies but really uh, I mean the only thing is like you know Jesse has that weird kind of like rat tail ponytail but that looks cool actually it, like is fitting for his character like everybody the way they dress like 
people dress like that now, it's not that crazy to think about this being a movie that would just come out today. So agreed. And at all fronts. <laughs> so having said that, what is on our next episode? Well, my friend, because I had to, go, to choose. Yeah, I had to go back to our list and I had to make sure that I was going to pick something that I knew possibly we both had access to given our limited resources, even with streaming. So this is the one I pick. Hopefully you're you're good on your end. And I'll be good regardless. I can pretty much track down anything. Fantastic. That's good. <laughs> um, I'm very excited about this because we're stepping out a little bit with... Um, the kind of criteria or the, the, the movies that we've thus far talked about in terms of um, era. Most of the movies we talked about at this point, almost all of them with the exception of Cliffhanger have all been 80s movies, which is great. I, I love that. That's, you know, that's a perfect midnight <laughs> flick era. That was to be expected. That was to be expected. But we're going to go way back for this one. Shit. We're going to go back to the 60s. Shit, yeah, this will be our oldest movie. Yes, and it also is going to be our first Roman Polanski movie. Oh, shit. So Are I pick we... for the next one, Repulsion. Oh, wow. Yes. Is uh, This is off the top of my head. Is Repulsion his first movie? No. No, okay. It's like his third. Okay, it's, a, it's early on, though. But I remember that it is. I I'll, I might have to re-reference this, but this is the first and what's considered the uh, the apartment trilogy, the yes. Polanski apartment trilogy being Repulsion, The Tenant, and Rosemary's Baby. Yes, yeah, and of the three, I've not seen The Tenant, but I've watched Rosemary's Baby and Repulsion uh, a fucking ton. So that is awesome. I super looking forward to it yeah and this also checks off another box where with me because charlotte's been wanting to see it and she hasn't seen it either so we'll be able to watch this together so two birds one stone next time we're gonna be watching repulsion yeah and keeping our pedophile theme alive by doing the polanski movie hell yeah <laughs> <laughs> Woo! <laughs> but no I, <laughs> I look forward to it um well wonderful Finger licking good. Hey, Jess, I got smell like a dead polecat. Well, this has been another deep dive into Midnight Movie Madness. Big thanks to Charlotte Blythe for providing our intro music. Our outro music today is brought to you by Dead in the Manger. If you're a band looking to submit a song or a listener looking to submit a question, feel free to shoot us an email at midnightflixpod at gmail.com. That's F-L-I-X-pod at gmail.com. Or hit us up on Instagram at midnightflixpod. Again, F-L-I-X. For Adam Walker, I'm Pat Mitchell. See you on the other side. All right. (laughs) 